There are more and more psychologists, therapists, support workers, social workers out there that are coming to this awakening that the people they're working with are not disordered. They're just completely natural, normal responses to everything they've been through. Yes, you heard that right. I am telling you right now, your entire perspective of yourself is about to shift dramatically because you're not disordered, according to chartered psychologist Dr. Jessica Taylor. Oh, and hi, I know a lot of new friends have joined us here. So if you're new, hi, I'm Dahlia. I'm kind of like the friend you need to be to yourself. And Dr. Jess, well, she's turning the idea of mental illness on its head. As she'll explain, there's a confusion between trauma and mental illness. Her take? Trauma needs to be validated and seen for what it is without having a diagnosis attached to it. She says what's happened is millions of abused and traumatized women, they're not mentally ill at all. Their so-called disorders? Completely normal reactions to disordered situations. So get ready, because everything you've been told about mental illness, it's going to get blown up today. And just wait till you hear what she says about medicating these things. Oh, and if you're into attachment theory, oh yeah, she turns that on its head too. The psychologist who has a PhD in forensic psychology to boot has helped thousands of people through her work and as director of Victim Focus. More than that, she's proof of the power of one. If you're not in the United Kingdom, maybe you haven't heard of Dr. Jessica Taylor yet, but the world will soon and, well, just wait till you find out the adversity she's faced, the visceral hate from thousands that actually ignited her career. And now the best-selling author behind Sexy But Psycho and Why Women Are Blamed for Everything is also part of shows on Discovery and Netflix. But it's her mission that will hopefully change yours and the way you see yourself and others. So warning, you're going to want to share this episode with everyone you know, because when you learn something like this, you cannot keep it to yourself. But first, come on in and learn. Join Dr. Jess and me as we dig straight into her life and yours, as it were, and learn about the power of one with what she's done and the power that you have. Because as she'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with you. So here we go. Her hair is curly. Her teeth are pearly. She's got an edge, but she's still pretty girly. Oh, oh, nothing rhymes with Dahlia. And the, the thing is, really, I, I don't know how often you sit back and reflect I don't know if you have time to sit back and reflect on what has happened, but I was just listening to your story and to go through abuse, abuse, trauma, abuse, then you drop out of high school, you have a baby at 17 and the story behind it, I mean, I'm simplifying, I'm oversimplifying everything, trauma, abuse, trauma, abuse, you have another baby at 19, you have a stroke, you're still yeah. a mama to those babies, and you are pushing forward, you end up so quickly 
whilst doing this, becoming a chartered psychologist, a forensic psychologist, becoming a groundbreaking voice for so many people. I would love, before we get into the groundbreaking work that you're doing, for you to maybe fill in the blanks of your story wherever you want to, but also your life policy that helps you get through all of that to where you are right now. <laughs> I feel like you've just started with that. You may as well have said, what's the meaning of life as the first question. And what's the meaning of life? <laughs> yeah. Please. Jess, if while you're here, you could solve everything. Um, Please. Oh God, where to start? There's so much actually that I don't talk about. Um, and I think people, I've tried in the same way you just did. I think I have tried several times to almost create this like brief version of my life because there's just too much of it like I and um in some cases I think it leads to people asking even more questions like well what about this and how did you do how is that possible and where were your kids during this and what about this and what about that I'm like what do you want do you want me to sit here and answer every single question like it's an autobiography like I, I don't this is massive like people's lives are complicated especially when you've been subjected to trauma and abuse like your life ends up very complex anyway in, in ways that lots of people will never understand so to fill in blanks I mean there's so many blanks that I've never filled in and um, there's so many things that I don't talk about there's some things that even even though you've asked me directly I still wouldn't talk about you know there's like particular areas um that you'll notice like well maybe some people would that I never touch on online like there's particular areas I do not go into and sometimes that's because my expertise isn't there and I'm not going to do it but sometimes it's because it's stuff that I am not prepared or not ready to talk about because I haven't processed it so I am not going to be the voice on it but in terms of how I got through it all I don't really know the answer to that. I don't think I have an insightful answer I know that I do sit back and reflect I reflect a lot because I'm as shocked as anybody else is that I'm here like I I didn't have like any help I didn't have contacts I didn't have people around me helping me in fact I had people around me constantly telling me that I wasn't good enough and that I was never going to succeed and I was like delusional and that I'm, I'm self-obsessed if anything, every single time I've achieved anything, it's made it much worse. I think the only thing I could say that is solid is that when I was really little, before all of the abuse, all of the trauma, before everything, so I would have been 10, like 9 or 10, I was an extremely determined, strange little kid. I was constantly hidden somewhere reading a book. I had big ideas about the world. There were things that I did not agree with. You know, I would watch things or read things or listen to people. And I just didn't think the world was a very nice place. And I wanted to do something about it. I've still got a letter somewhere. I've kept it. I saw the box the other day when we were getting Christmas decorations out, but I've got a box. And in there somewhere, there is a letter that I wrote to myself when I was maybe I was like nine or 10, at a push 11. I think I was younger than that, though. I might have been in year four, so I might have been like nine. And it said, do not open until you're 18. And it said, life plan on it. And I wrote like a plan. <laughs> and it said on it, occupation, psychologist. It like planned out the house I was going to live in, the car I was going to drive. And it was, all, <laughs> it was all folded up and I've kept it. And it's in glitter gel pen that I wrote at the time. Are you going to frame this? Do you know what? I sometimes, yeah, maybe I should. <laughs> and what makes me laugh about that, because I've posted about it before on my social media, is that underneath it says that my secondary occupation, if I'm not a psychologist, is the prime minister. So it's sort of like, if that doesn't work, 
prime minister um because always the father yeah, yeah yeah so i don't know i just i don't really know what made me like that because i didn't have anybody around me that was pushing me or had any interest in me really or any belief particularly I've always been like that I just had a determination that there was absolutely no way that I was doing nothing I'd got it in my head that you get this like one life and you're supposed to do something you're supposed to change something or improve something and I've always been like that and I'm still I still feel like that but I couldn't tell you why because I'm not religious or spiritual but it's just so I don't know where it's come from part of it if I if I think about myself and you know a lot of people are like this and I've even read you writing about it that the coping mechanisms that we develop when we're dealing with trauma those are the very things that can become problematic as they stick with us when we're older but at the same time for me those coping mechanisms that helped me sort trauma or deal with it have been the very things that have boosted me yeah and I wouldn't want to give them up yeah you think that could be part of it yeah yeah and I think that's so insightful because one of them I've already had to address so I did I developed a real sort of like obsessive perfectionism um that I had like really impacted me probably until I was about 27 something like that and when I was about 24 or 25 I had to really address it because I was getting to the point where what I was working on or what I was doing or the control over my life wasn't absolutely perfect and I wasn't absolutely content it just wasn't good enough and it made me feel terrible and it made me very successful very efficient if I was going to take something on it was being done to the highest quality anybody's ever seen like and that and that was my ba- like that was my line and it was purely actually because it was a study that you could apply to take part in if you felt that you were a perfectionist to the point that it was impacting your life and I took part in that study as a participant because I just thought that sounds like me and I took part in it and I had to like be interviewed and answer all these questions and it was during that period in fact it it was so fast for me it was during that study which only lasted about three months that I really addressed it I was like wow this controls my whole life but like on the Mm -hmm. other hand I'd realized like you just said the perfectionism was essentially making me amazing at things um, because I was ensuring that if I ever turned my hand to something it would be done perfectly or it wasn't being done at all I'm not like that anymore. It, it, I didn't have to work hard on that at all. It was more like something clicked and I was like, you don't have to do this to, to the point where it hurts you, to the point where it's harming you. I do also think, and I know a lot about the research evidence around striving for success is sometimes a coping mechanism about worthlessness and about self-worth. So you seek achievements or you seek purpose in the world because you've come from a place where you had no purpose, no worth, and you didn't have a role. So you sort of like, one of your coping mechanisms becomes creating a role for yourself in the world and um, striving for goals and purpose and change because it's a way of coping with the fact that for so long you were treated as if you were worthless and you had no place in the world. So I'm not naive enough to, to not think that those things are an influence because I think they probably are. But I definitely, I have a determination. That's the bit that I don't get. I think that I'll, I'll still have to do a lot more work on that and sort of figure it out. But I was living on a council estate where our teachers were like mocking us on a daily basis that we were like, oh, you're going to be nothing. Kids from around here are nothing. You know, like I was a straight A student at school, but I was from like the poorest area. I had a lot of other stuff going on in my life, often didn't turn up to school. It was almost like the teachers had just washed their hands of me. They were just like, she's a waste of time. Don't bother with her. And even still, 
they would be sort of your homework's late and I'd think right well I'll just do it later and then I'd get an A star and go there you go (laughs) like it wasn't hard and they hated that I think they struggled with like why does she not try but everything's so such a breeze and they became more and more resentful I think over a period of time I just hated school after a bit I didn't fit in there at all but then I had everything else going on in our community and where we lived I don't know why I was so determined because Every time I showed even a little bit of like grit that I wanted to get out of there, somebody or something knocked me back down. You know, when I got pregnant, even then, I just thought, well, I'll have this baby. I'm going to sort my life out. And then I, had, I got pregnant again. And I was like, well, I'll, ha- I'll have this baby and I'm going to sort my life out. And like, I don't know. I just can't be kept down. I'm not 100% sure why yet. I don't even think that you need an answer to those questions. I think you're just demonstrating it. When I look at your story, I see the the first book that you wrote, the irony, the irony in that, how it becomes such a smash. I heard the story of how you ended up having to have like 10,000 copies delivered to your driveway (laughs) because you were distributing it yourself. Why women are blamed for everything. (laughs) I want to get into this, why women are blamed for everything and how it's almost as if the way you describe it, you opened my eyes to a a different idea of how the same way mental illnesses are attributed to women for trauma Mm -hmm. and the experiences they've been through. It's much like hundreds of years ago when some women were called witches. Before we get to that, this book, I think it says so much because this came out, it's almost like it's your life in a sentence. This came out so big because so many people just took their hate and spewed it at you to push you down. And in their attempt to push you down, they ended up helping to catapult your career. (laughs) At the time, it didn't feel like that because I was getting like death threats and rape threats and like the police had to take my computers because they hacked them. And like some of the, some of the things I was sent, I have never publicly shared because they were so graphic that I wouldn't want to trigger people. Like they were so bad. Like there was several times where me and Jamie got them. We were both so disgusted by the graphic detail of the death threat or the rape threat that we just, I remember one time we were eating dinner and I got one and it came to my phone and I just was like, I can't eat. I was like, I say I'm done. Like, I'm going to bed. Like, it was it was so bad. At the time, it was really, really scary. I had constant attempts to like hack into everything. Like I said, they managed to take over my laptop and like literally my screen right in front of me was just moving. They were clicking on things, they were opening stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, what is this? And I rang the police. The police took all my stuff away. But then because of what happened, the press picked it up and was like, look what happened to this woman who wrote this book called Why Women Are Blamed for Everything. And I found out later that the title and all my contact details had been shared on like a forum for like mobbing, like online mobbing. There were tens of thousands of people on this forum and they'd all agreed to just do this to me like relentlessly. And we got to the point where probably like when you refresh your phone, there was maybe another 800 comments or threats and then you like did it again and it was like that and it was just it was impossible it was absolutely impossible to to police it was just out of control and the press picked it up and then it ended and then the book ended up even bigger but I think actually one of the other things that happened with why women are blamed for everything is that people resonated with it they'd never seen a book before that actually pulled apart the psychology of victim blaming of women and why women are seen as the cause and the solution to absolutely everything that ever happens to them you know that you caused it to happen to you and therefore if you change you can solve it. 
Um, and that sort of goes from being really overt, sort of like, well, what you were wearing or something like that, all the way through to something like that sounds like therapy. It sounds like professional practice, almost like, well, you know, you have vulnerabilities that you need to address and you keep attracting the wrong people and you need to take responsibility <laughs> for your decisions. There's the whole, oh, she was wearing a short skirt, but like we're, it's still on the same spectrum as you need to take responsibility for your decisions because, you know, you keep picking the wrong people. It's the same thing. Well, I think about one of the things you mentioned where more and more young women are almost girls, women, young women of every age. They're almost looking for validation of their trauma through a diagnosis. And it's frightening to me because I didn't think about it like that. There's a certain situation that comes to mind immediately when I was working with teens. Mm -hmm. One teen came to me and she said, I'm pretty sure that I have a borderline personality disorder. Why why do you think you have borderline personality disorder? I didn't even see her exhibit. And I'm not a professional, but just from understanding basic Googling, I didn't see her exhibit those sorts of behaviors. And she said, my dad, her father, who's abusive, my dad told me that this is what I have. And the more I read about it, the more I realize that this is what I have. And now with Google, you think about the addition of Google and what you mentioned Mm -hmm. And the people who are self-diagnosing uh-huh. even because they just want that diagnosis. Yeah. Okay, there's loads to get into there. So first of all, I think what's really useful to, for everybody to know is that there has been several pieces of research that show that at any one time, say, for example, you're distressed, maybe you're moving house or you've had a relationship breakdown or like trauma. So like, you know, you your mum's died, you've recently been raped, like whatever it is, okay? We know already that the same symptoms, supposedly one disorder, they overlap with so many that at any one time, if you're distressed, you could be diagnosed with at least 14 psychiatric disorders because the criteria itself overlaps so heavily across each disorder disorder and then on top of that you have to look at things like confirmatory bias because you are you are almost confirming what you think is is how you feel and then you're seeing it on the screen and going that's me that's 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 how I feel I'm I'm my moods go up and down I struggle with sleeping I don't trust people anymore and then you're sort of going that's that describes me it's like how any horoscope yeah. you read can yeah, describe right? you. Yeah. And the, the difference, let's say, let's use horoscopes, the difference between horoscopes and like psychiatric diagnosis is that people have been led to believe that psychiatric diagnosis, the criteria is based on science, which it isn't. It's based on subjective criteria and subjective description. For example, there are no tests for borderline personality disorder. You can't have a blood test. You can't have a brain scan. You can't have a gene test. You can't have a urine test. All it is based on is you identifying with the criteria and then somebody else agreeing that that's how they think you behave and think and that's your diagnosis. So you could be distressed and you would fit the criteria for so many psychiatric disorders at once that it's kind of like a postcode lottery as to which one you get given when you go and see the doctor because what we do know also is that like if that particular psychiatrist or psychologist specializes in like borderline personality disorder you're very likely that they will see you through that lens but if you went and saw a Mm -hmm. second one that specializes in bipolar disorder they will see you through that lens and you you sort of get redefined and reframed as they see you so, you know, that's important. And then I think the other thing about self, like validation and self-diagnosis is that we, if we live in a world where people's day-to-day distress 
on top of real serious traumas that are not being validated, they're not being addressed, they're being blamed for them, they're being shamed for them, they're being guilt-tripped for them. None of that's being looked at, none of that's being supported, but then there's this thing on Google that says if you feel like X, Y, and Z, maybe you have this mental disorder, you can understand why so many people look at that and go, that's what it is all this time, and I didn't know that's what I had, rather than the messier answer, which is actually you've been subjected to so many traumas that it is likely you'll think and feel and behave like this. Well, explain this further then, because I mean, if I when I say explain this further, I mean, I, I don't have the 20 hours to give you that you probably need to explain all of this further. But it is remarkable to me when I analyze it from the lens that you gave when when you talk about how these diagnoses are very much like how women were treated hundreds mm -hmm. of years ago as witches. Yeah. Can you give to somebody right now who's maybe been told a woman who's been through abuse and she's been told you have bipolar disorder or a woman who has been through a different trauma and she's told you have an anxiety and a depression disorder. Can you please reframe that from your perspective in just a sec? The way I would explain that and the way I explain that to like family and friends, because I don't do case work it's, so it's usually just people around me if they come to me for personal advice is you know if somebody sat in front of me and says I've got anxiety disorder I've been told I have anxiety disorder I take this medication every day it's it's because I have a brain chemical imbalance the doctors told me that it's a disorder the easiest way to reframe it for me usually is I tend to ask women when did you start feeling like this is there a thing was there an event was there a situation, an environment. And often at first, women will sort of go, oh, I don't really remember. You know, I was like, it, it, I think I've had it for years. But if you dig enough and sort of say, well, do you remember when this didn't happen? Do you remember when you never felt like this before? When was it easier? You know, when did it start to get worse, for example? And you'll often get eventually they'll say, well, you know, there was like my husband cheated on me years ago. And um, I've never been the same since. You're like, right, let's start from there. Okay, so your husband cheated on you. And then when what happened? Well, I started feeling worthless. I started thinking I was fat. I looked in the mirror and I just thought, God, I'm not good enough. And then this set in and then that set in. And then I started getting scared. I wouldn't go out to bars anymore. I didn't want to date anymore. I started, you know, being scared of relationships. I don't trust anybody. He told everybody that, I don't know, that I wasn't good in bed. Or he told everybody that I was terrible in a relationship, that I didn't respect him. And then it, it made me think, God, is that what I'm really like? And then I started questioning myself. Then the self-doubt set in. And you can see actually how what looks like anxiety, i.e. intense fear, being worried all the time, self-doubt, panic. You can see how that builds over a period of time. And so my approach to that would be to say, if we broke all of those things down and looked at each one and how those behaviours developed because of how you were made to feel or because of how something made you feel, they actually look very rational to me. They look logical. They look normal. They look exactly what I would expect you to feel like after something like this. And then the more you get somebody into that kind of mindset, they'll often say things like, oh, well, and I mean, the other thing is then my mum got ill around that time. And, you know, I've been looking after her for, for the last two years and I'm so tired. And then I got offered a promotion at work, but I couldn't take it because I'm looking after my mom. And you think now concentrate, like look at all of these different distressing experiences and you've been told by the GP after five minutes it's an anxiety disorder, but you've just sat here and spoken to me for half an hour 
and we've just identified seven or eight different distressing things that you're having to deal with, why wouldn't you be worried right now? Why wouldn't you be not coping? Like That's the way I would reframe it. You make me think of, and I think this is happening as I get older and I understand more. And look, this is part of my podcast. This is part of conversations that I get to have with experts like yourself. And so I learned from this and it was a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago. Someone was telling me, you are over the top intense right now. This is too much. You need to calm down. And instead of feeling like there was something wrong with me, which in the past, maybe that would have happened. I said, no. If you look at what I'm going through right now, I have this, this, and this. I have Mm -hmm. this, this, and this. It's a perfectly rational reaction to what's going on. It's just not something that you would see in normal day-to-day life. So say, right, let's take this situation that that somebody said this to you. That is Mm -hmm. about them, not about you, because you are easier to deal with if you comply and shut up. So like if you calm down, stop being so intense, whatever it is that they wanted in that situation... That was about them not having to deal with the reality of how complex everything is right now. So actually that is, and professionals do that too. Whereas just allow each other to not cope, you know, and sort of say, wow, like, yeah, you are, you're going through so much at the moment. I can totally see why you're feeling like this right now and give each other the space to do that. There wouldn't be so much sort of the invalidation of everything, you know, the the reframing of every experience and environment that you're struggling with as just irrelevant and it's just your behavior it's just your mental health or whatever and I I really struggle with how people have managed to cut those two things off like you were able to sort of go back and go well no look at this and this and this that I'm going through why can't I behave like this why can't I be communicating in this particular way but lots of people are shut down by that kind of comment you know like they they would take that and think oh maybe I am too intense maybe I am being too much well it's not like that comment helped my situation either because uh, people don't want to hear you rebut like that that's that's a very difficult thing so when when you talk about you want 2023 to be the year where we're not medicating this distress Mm -hmm. but there's so many things that we need to be able to fix systemically before something like that even happens because we have so many people like for instance if you just look at my circumstance when I had to stand up for myself while I was going through a a lot of stress in that moment which is a difficult Mm. thing to do that person in that conversation with me has been exposed to a certain sort of education a certain sort of culture and this is what we expect from others so how do we get to this point where we don't have to medicate distress and people around us can be more empathetic and understanding to it I think the first thing that needs to happen is like the public education piece which is what I'm trying to do you know I have a quarter of a million followers across all of my um, platforms and the reach is usually about six to eight million a month and just putting the posts out to say did you know this is totally normal and have you considered that you don't have a mental disorder and that actually you're reacting totally normally and already I can see that working I see people's language changing I see other influencers shifting things I see professionals moving I see academics changing um so that works and the reason that you have to do like that those little pieces is because even it might seem little but it's not to people's individual lives you know like women write to me all the time and say I thought I had a mental disorder for the last 34 years 
And I've watched your Instagram for the last three weeks and I've realised I don't have a mental disorder. I've been abused several times. I don't know why I ever thought I was crazy. I'm not crazy. Like even that is is life changing for individuals, right? So there's the individual Mm -hmm. piece, but that doesn't address the systemic stuff. And that's what my company does. So we work on the systemic change. So for example, it's quite common in the UK that you could go to your doctor and you could say, I'm really not coping. I feel so low all the time. I keep thinking I don't want to be here anymore. It'd be easier if I was dead, whatever it is that they say. And rather than the GP validating that in any way, they say, well, you need to go to the mental health team. So then they get referred to the mental health team. The mental health team then go, right, we're going to do a load of assessments on you. Basically a load of questions, talk to them for a little bit. And then usually there'll either be some sort of medication prescription or they'll say, or and or they'll say well you need therapy but often the way that it works is that the therapy has like gatekeepers that will then say stuff like well you can only access this therapy if you have a diagnosis of this or well this is only available if you have this diagnosis or you can only access our therapy if you start taking the antidepressants first so it pushes you down a medical route and you even if you don't want to be down one and that's the systemic change that needs to happen there has to be a time where trauma is validated and seen for what it is without having to have a psychiatric label and a load of medication attached to it. You should just be able to present and say, I need help. I'm not coping. I'm, you know, I'm extremely distressed at the moment. This has happened and this has happened and this has happened. What can you do to help? And rather than suggesting it's in your head, it's a mental disorder, there doesn't need to be, in my opinion, there doesn't need to be that second level of analysis You could just support people on that face of it. Every service I've ever managed, every service I've ever worked in, because I've never worked in a medical frontline capacity, I've always worked in a support or, um, you know, sort of like domestic violence, sexual violence, child abuse. I don't have and I never have had the capacity to prescribe, medicate or diagnose. And yet I've helped successfully thousands of people. So how is it possible that I could have caused that much change if all these people were mentally ill and required prescriptions? You know, there are so many services out there in the world. Counsellors, for example, they can't prescribe or diagnose. Support groups can't uh, prescribe or diagnose. If you ring a a helpline when you're grieving or when you're struggling or, or when you're being bullied and you talk to somebody who listens to you, validates it and helps you cope, that didn't require any medication or, or any kind of diagnosis. And yet they work. So why are they working? If this is biological and this is in your head, why do they work? So we have to cause the systemic change to force professionals to think differently. You know, we do a lot of work with police even that they go out to victims of crime and their referral routes are, you know, if they show any distress or they say they can't cope since they've been this victim of whatever crime it is, refer them to mental health because they need a diagnosis, they need medication, whatever it is. But what if they don't? What if we could create alternative routes? What if we could change the culture so that professionals themselves actually just did that extra bit of work to say, I think it's absolutely normal that you're scared after you've been a victim of crime totally normal and common makes sense because you've been subjected to something that was very frightening and wasn't your fault and you couldn't have predicted and now you're in this sort of you know hyper vigilant terrified traumatized mode and this is going to take some time surely that is more humanistic than suggesting well actually it's probably a mental health disorder so we'll make a referral i think the systemic change is possible do you ever believe in medication 
I can't see a, I can't see a role for it. And the, the reason that I can't see a role for it is that none of the medication currently that's available even does what people say it does. So like, for example, antidepressants is a marketing term. They're not antidepressants. They're usually SSRIs or SNRIs. They were based on the theory that depression is caused by serotonin imbalances in the brain, which has been completely debunked and had to be retracted. We've had a recent meta-analysis that was released this year in the summer that showed that out of all of the studies ever done that looked at the so-called serotonin brain imbalance, it doesn't exist and that's not what happens and that's not what depression is. In terms of what people call anti-anxiety medication, it has no impact psychologically. It's usually a beta blocker of some kind or a sedative or some form of stimulant drug. So it's not impacting your anxiety in any way. That is a placebo. If you think you feel calmer on anti-anxiety medication, that's a placebo effect because it's not making you calmer. It has no psychological drug. And then the same with so-called antipsychotics. Most of them are anti-seizure and anti-epilepsy drugs. So-called antipsychotics are just heavy sedatives like benzodiazepines, things like that, where Actually, it's about slowing your whole body, your brain, everything, just like almost sedating you to the point where you're not feeling anything at all, which is why people talk about feeling zombified and that they feel like they can't process anything anymore. So if you look at it like that, you took a step back. The only thing we're doing is giving people drugs that have a placebo effect. We're giving beta blockers that change blood pressure and heart rate um, and adrenaline responses, or we're giving sedatives or anti-epilepsy drugs. So... What do you want to do to help the people who have been through trauma? I mean, so many people don't even recognize their own traumas. Sometimes it takes 15, 20 years later and you go, oh my goodness, that was a narcissist and they were mm. abusing me all of that time. And I never realized I it until right education's now. education's got to be a big one. I think we need to start talking to children as early as possible at school about not just everybody else's behavior, because I think that we're missing something there because we have started talking to kids about you know like abuse and like this person can't touch you and this person can't do this I don't think we're doing the other way around which is you can't do that to somebody else like almost like the accountability element of it that hmm. our society breeds abusers and perpetrators because there's no accountability there's no justice usually um, people celebrate those kinds of people and they tend to do very well in the world so um, because they're so manipulative and so they're, like, they're you know, good at it. I often see from an education piece that there's a lot of like, these are the signs of abuse and if you're being abused, tell somebody, fine, like whatever, like carry on doing that all you like. But what about the other side of it, which is teaching children from a very early age, you do not have the right to treat people like this. You cannot, you know, do not control people, do not lie to them, do not manipulate them for your own ends. Like what about that kind of education? So like we could shift the cause of trauma by addressing it. We need to look at oppression. We would need to look at things like poverty. We would need to look at things like inequality in society. Like these are big things, but it sounds like scary. Like I have lots of people say to me, that's impossible. But I always say, well, we built it. So why can't we deconstruct it? humans created this mess why you know if a group of humans or one human just like me one day suggested oh i think women are hysterical let's medicate them well, then why doesn't it just take one human to go excuse me i don't think that's true let's stop medicating them why do we think that it's such a big job like if we are so like defeatist all the time oh that'll never change it's massive how would that work then obviously it won't work like we're not going to do it are we you make me think about the beauty industry, for instance, and it's been very big, especially the past, I don't know, decade. All of the mental health fake speak that's come out, I can think yeah. of Dove right away, who's been a big part of that. 
And so what happens is, you know, you talk about how we need to deconstruct the way this is. Well, the people who are right on top, like Dove comes out and says, yes, this is terrible <laughs> while they're selling you self-esteem. <laughs> yes, this is terrible. We, we need to stop this. We need to stop this. But at the same time, everything keeps perpetuating it. It's really mm-hmm. a, a maniacal way to continue doing something like this. So when you talk about this whole idea about deconstructing this world of mental illness and the way that we treat women through it. It's the same thing that's happened with beauty and body image and all of these standards. We talk about deconstructing it, but really we are strengthening it mm. by having all of this mental health fake speak sustain it. It's hard. So it's a very but tricky again, situation. I think that's because yeah. we're living currently in a predominantly capitalist society and the beauty industry relies uh, capitalism relies on it that relies on capitalism so beauty industry of course will shapeshift to try to fit the most current narrative about well-being about weight about beauty about conventional standards of attractiveness so that they can continue to sell the product but there isn't actually in this particular example i would like to see you know the money that's being given to pharmaceutical companies like even in even in the uk we're spending billions a year on just giving millions of people pills every day but we're not addressing how traumatized society is so you all yeah. you hear all the time is um oh there's no budgets for therapy there's no money in the budgets for therapy there is it's being given to the pharmaceutical companies to buy pills so like even if we were to siphon a chunk of that money off and say why don't we test what happens when you address people's distress and their trauma in a humanistic way, that money does exist. There's no, I, it really annoys me that people say things like, oh, well, we just don't have the money. No, we do. We're just not using it correctly. And there are already people figuring this out. Like the World Health Organization, as an example, I met with them and they were saying the trauma-informed anti-medical anti-pathology model is something World Health Organization is thinking about adopting. Well, they, they already want to adopt it, but they've got to think about how they want to do that. And, you know, I talked to other big international bodies where they'll say we're already going down this path we have we realize the arguments that you're making are right we just need to figure out how to do it so there are battles in a way that have kind of already been won here like winning over somebody mentally and saying have you considered that this isn't good for humankind that we're not going to progress as a species if we continue down this path like currently i think it's like one in four people in the uk are taking an antidepressant or an antipsychotic drug like every day so so that's a quarter of our population currently think they're mentally ill and that they they have to take a pill every day there's absolutely no way that that's accurate there is no way that can be true but what can be true is that a quarter of our population have been abused or have lost somebody or are working in a job that exploits them or that they're being subjected to racism every day, you know, that they're struggling with their sexuality, like they're being repressed, like their identity, whatever it is, that's likely. It makes me think, everything you're saying makes me think of that rat experiment, and I forget who was it that did this years ago, where they had rats alone in a cage, and they would give them drugs, heroin to drink from. And when there were no other rats there, they would put themselves into a drug stupor. But once other rats were added to the cage, they chose the rats over the heroin. They chose the rats over the drug because the power of 
connection, mm. social connection, real connection, they inherently knew instinctively that it was so much healthier for them. A lot of people who have been through trauma feel lonely. They feel as though they are alone, they're lonely, they're the problem, they're why they can't have a relationship. And this is what we need. We need this connection to thrive. It's like air. And I saw you write about attachment theory, because I know that so many people get into this, especially when they can't find somebody, they, they just can't find their person. And so they try to dig deeper. And what's wrong with me? What, what, how can I categorize myself to understand why mm. I can't find a relationship? And I thought it was very important for you to okay. share your thoughts on attachment theory. I think attachment theory has been misused. And I think it's been twisted. And it has been dumbed down to the point where it means absolutely nothing. And we have to look at some of the assumptions that have been made about attachment. I remember learning about it. Most of us have, at some point have heard about attachment. You, you know, I learned about it before university. Then I learned about it when I was doing my degree. And then every time you do safeguarding training, when you work with adults or children, attachment theory is usually in the training. So I've probably been taught attachment theory 30 times, something like that. And every single time I listened to it, I just thought, this seems oversimplified for how complicated human relationships are, but I didn't really have any evidence. So it wasn't really something that I put my hand up and was like, uh, I just sort of sat there listening, thinking, I don't think humans are that simple. But what then happened was that I noticed over probably between about 2015 and now, so 2022, I noticed more and more bits of peer-reviewed evidence coming out, some critiques coming out, longitudinal studies being published that suggested that you don't have one set attachment. So the original theory was that you are born and you get your sort of first blueprint of an attachment or a relationship from your primary caregiver. And that if that caregiver was attentive and supportive and present, that you would have a secure attachment. And that almost like that attachment becomes your blueprint of how you understand relationships and that you feel secure in that, that you then apply to everybody else, to your new partners, to your new friends, to everybody else, okay? But if your primary caregiver was absent or maybe um, inconsistent or neglectful or abusive, you will have these different disorganized attachment types or like unhealthy, insecure attachment types that you would then have as your blueprint and you would apply them to everybody else and so people have been led to believe that if they look back at their childhood and think yeah no I had my parents were abusive or I was I was removed from my parents as a child or my parents were neglectful or you know my mum died when I was little or whatever it is that they think disrupted their attachment they are almost being led to self-blame why the rest of their relationships maybe haven't worked so far and I just don't think that's true and one of the things that really made me challenge attachment theory was I met a teenage girl who had been abused by her mum and her dad her dad had then left mum was still abusive then she was trafficked and she was sold to hundreds of men and, you, you know, she was raped and abused all the way through her childhood. I spoke to her social worker who said she had attachment disorder. And I said, on what basis does she have attachment disorder? And she said, well, she doesn't trust anybody and she can't form and hold down relationships. She gets into relationships and then she sabotages <laughs> them. She, you know, when we tell her to trust us and that we're safe and that we're not like her mom and her dad and, and the traffickers... She doesn't believe us and she will back away. She won't form relationships. 
And I just looked at her and was like, does that not sound normal to you at all? Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, it sounds so logical. Taking everything she's learned about the world and then she's trying to protect herself, which ironically is what you're telling me you're trying to get her to do is to like protect herself from abuse, which I don't agree with anyway. But I also noticed, because I knew her for a period of time, that I thought she was securely attached to a couple of people. One was her auntie and one was like a support worker that she adored. And the uh, the relationship was excellent. Communication was great. Support system was great. And I was like sort of thinking to myself, hang on a minute, how, how is that possible according to attachment theory? So eventually I started thinking, this isn't right. Surely you can have dynamic attachments. So you could be insecurely attached to your mum and dad but you could be securely attached to your partner but then you could have an ex-partner who your attachment to was very dependent and very toxic but then you could have you know a sibling who you're securely attached to and then your marriage could break down and then you could meet somebody else who you're securely attached to and so longitudinal studies of attachment have now shown that your attachment will keep shifting all the way through your life depending on the experiences impact pressures environment and also you could have multiple attachments at once and that makes much more sense to me that's intuitively how i was wondering if it went like that i just have i don't have all of your degrees and experience to know that but it just it just makes sense there are so many things that i want to talk to you about the three myths that people keep pushing and if we stopped pushing these myths how we could improve the mental health of our society Let's get to that next. What are three myths that you would like us to understand so that we don't fall into their trap? That oh, there's so many to choose from. Let me like <laughs> the ones that you want us to. Let me try to, and then it could be more than three, less than three, get. whatever you choose. Um, the first is that <laughs> I think it's a total myth that perpetrators pick vulnerable women. So if you are one of those women that think, have I got some sort of sign on my head? Why does this keep happening to me? It is not because it's about you. It's because abusers and abusive behavior is so common and so supported in society that purely on a numbers basis, if you're alive for 70 or 80 years, you are very, very likely to repeatedly meet perpetrators. That is nothing to do with you. And it's happening to everyone in one way or another. It could be their boss, it could be their dad, it could be six boyfriends. So it's, that's one thing. I really don't think there's evidence that perpetrators are like seeking out vulnerable people. Do not make this about yourself. And actually, when you look at domestic abuse and sex offender research, it doesn't back it up. So it, that's something that we've created as like a societal narrative. The second one is, I think the big one is that it's a total myth that you have a brain chemical imbalance if anybody at any point has told you you've gone and sought support for how you're feeling you're feeling like that because you have a brain chemical imbalance i can guarantee you that's not backed up by research not only the fact that the research doesn't back it up but how did they prove to you that you had a brain chemical imbalance in the first place like was there a test <laughs> did they offer you an example hmm. of what the optimum levels of that brain chemical was and then they did test yours to check it was low or high you know th this is just um colloquialism it's like a phrase a metaphor it's it's nothing more than that and they can't prove that to you and equally, if they then give you medication and say that will help the brain chemical imbalance, how do they know that? Are they testing it? Did they test you after a month to see whether it got up or went down? Like it, it's just not scientific. So if you want to like learn more about that, you should certainly learn about the serotonin myth 
and things like that is really useful to know about. The other thing um, <laughs> I'm just going to get you in loads of trouble <laughs> um, is ACEs. ACEs and adverse childhood experience just scratch it out. That, that is a total myth. The ACEs framework has been stolen from the original authors. It has been misused. They have, you know, they've published as recently as 2020 in top journals to ask people to stop using the adverse childhood experiences score. There is no score out of 10. You don't have an ACE score and it will not predict your health long term. It will not predict your outcomes. If you've been abused as a child, you're not 47 times more likely to get cancer and COPD. That is not what the studies argued. They have been totally misused. And so if you have ever been told you have ACEs and you have an ACE score of six or whatever it is, please do not think that that is some sort of sentence for the rest of your life, because that is an example, again, of research that's been dumbed down to the point of meaning absolutely nothing and to the point where the original academics have had to ask people to stop, which has been ignored. Another myth is around borderline personality disorder and personality disorder in general. I don't think it exists. I think that the evidence has contested its existence for decades you know, if you consider that personality is socially constructed and therefore personality disorder must be socially constructed, what is seen as an optimum personality or a disordered personality in, let's say, the US is not going to be the same as it is in India or the same as it is in Russia. So how and why do we think that we've got some sort of monopoly over what is an optimum personality and what is a disordered personality? And that you should be paying attention to the groups that are most impacted by this. You know, you're seven times more likely to be diagnosed diagnosed with a personality disorder if you're female and you're more than 20 times more likely to be diagnosed with it if you've been abused like pay attention you know like there's reasons why these things are happening um there's just so many i could just go on forever really there's so many myths are there still narcissists <laughs> narcissistic personality disorder i don't think so no and that's something that i don't talk about online because i'm sick of hearing about it i think everybody's just decided everybody's a narcissist Mm-hmm. I get called it all the time because apparently I'm like, I love myself too much. And I'm too confident about what I do. So I'm a narcissist. Like people put on my social media all the time. You've obviously got narcissistic personality disorder. You've obviously got borderline personality disorder. Like I don't have any personality disorders, but you, you're framing me in a way because I make you uncomfortable in some way. If me being confident about who I am and being determined makes you uncomfortable, it doesn't make me narcissistic. It makes you uncomfortable. Stick with that. But in terms of like, the trend of narcissism i feel like every time i get on my phone in the morning there's some social media influencer claiming that everybody's a narcissist and you can spot the signs of narcissism and that you know this is how you know it's narcissism this person's a narcissist you've got like professionals distance diagnosing celebrities on tiktok and twitter oh they're obviously a narcissist based on what you've seen five minutes of an interview online like i just think that it's just another buzzword and that eventually it'll go away and it'll be something else. Um, but the thing is, narcissism, like in terms of how people behave, yeah, of course it exists. People people are like that. Like, it's not, I don't think it's a personality disorder. I don't think that there's such thing as sociopathy. I don't think there's such thing as psychopathy. I don't think the psychopaths, I don't think the sociopaths. I think that you've got a broad range of humans that live in a society that celebrates violence and abuse. It celebrates exploitation of each other. It supports capitalism. It supports racism, homophobia, misogyny. Like we live in a world that encourages each other to do each other over, to be in constant competition with each other, to resent each other, to hate each other we live in a materialistic society that teaches you that you have to have everything and if you don't you're not worth anything and therefore the people that have resources or whatever are 
bad and people that don't have resources are good because they're not materialistic like if you think about all of the different social narratives that are given about everybody we're being pit against each other because we're easier to control whilst we're at each other's throats than we are if we work together and so like it's just like a range of humanity i think people Mm. can have completely low empathy to the point where they can treat people terribly and not give a shit i think that exists i don't think that's a mental disorder i think there are people that truly enjoy abusing others and harming them like real sadistic sort of like getting joy out of watching somebody suffer i still don't think that's a mental disorder especially considering that our society actually encourages that to one extent or another i mean we have tv shows reality tv shows where you get to vote what punishment a celebrity gets that you don't like is that not sadism to some point like you're enjoying watching somebody cry on tv because you voted for that to happen social media too. I I want to know to that person who is sitting there feeling lonely right now, feeling as though, okay, so I don't have a disorder, but I feel disordered. People have told me I'm disordered. I have this abuse background of experience, this trauma. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I'm on my own. What do you tell them? That somebody else made decisions to make you feel the way you're feeling now. And it was deliberate and that that was their choice, not yours. That is about who they are, not about who you are. And that convincing you that it is you now with the problem and you have to solve it is part of that abuse. Sort of gaslighting you to the point where you are now sat there thinking, I thought I was disordered. I thought I had a mental disorder. And now, you know, Jess is here saying that I don't. That shouldn't be the revelation you know that you're that actually you're not mad that actually you're not disordered at all so that's the first thing and then the second thing is about seeking help that's non-medical that is more difficult but there are services that exist and there are helplines that exist and there are support services that exist you just have to sort of do a little bit of legwork and find out who they are i would suggest if you're looking for a therapist or you're looking for a support service is to ask them deliberate questions. So when you first talk to them, whether it's a charity or a helpline or a new therapist is to ask them things about, you know, do you believe that abuse causes borderline personality disorder? And if they go like, Oh yes, then just get rid of them, just find somewhere else and sort of do a bit of testing of them and say things like, Oh, what do you think about, you know, diagnostic tests for personality disorder? And the fact that like women, for example, are seven times more likely to be told they have a personality disorder. And if they can't answer you in a way that makes you You know, if they don't say, well, actually, that's probably because they're not very rigorous and they're not scientific and actually, you know, I don't think that's useful, then steer clear. And, you know, you will find them. They're sort of hidden everywhere. There are more and more psychologists, therapists, support workers, social workers out there that are coming to this like awakening that the people they're working with are not disordered. They're not. They're just completely natural, normal responses to everything they've been through so you have to find the right people so I I always ask questions like that of people like little trick questions I wrote them on my social media actually I gave a list of I think it was like seven questions to ask to figure out if somebody's really trauma-informed and anti-pathology so that you don't end up with the wrong person so I can reshare that I might I'll reshare it or something like maybe when your podcast comes out so they can find it and then the other thing that is probably really useful is to start off with just personal reflection and exploration of like right what coping mechanisms have I developed since this happened 
what are my trauma responses? So how do I respond when I think about or I'm being subjected to these kinds of traumas? What then developed out of those for me to be able to cope? Write them all down or draw them or do something so that they're visual so you can get them all down. And that list might be massive. It might it, That's fine. Or do it as a spider diagram even where you could sort of, you're in the middle and you could say, well, I had this trauma, you know, I had this car crash and then I was abused and then... I was in that relationship that was horrible and then, you know, my mum died and then, like, one of the kids got really ill. Put them down so that you can see everything you've actually ever had to deal with and then maybe have a look at what did each one make you feel? That one made you feel angry, that one made you feel guilty, that one made you feel ashamed, that one made you feel to blame and then look at, you know, what behaviours grew out of those, you know? Like, what did you do to cope? Did you drink? Did you withdraw? Did you become a perfectionist? Did you start going to the gym every day? Did you stop eating? Did, you know, like what happened? How did your brain and your body try to react? And I do think that that's such a useful exercise. Eventually it'll be massive. I'll warn you that. But don't be overwhelmed because it's, it's like an insight into your trauma responses. But I think that's really useful. I've done that with people before. And I think when you do that exercise, you'll actually probably develop more pride. Mm. <laughs> and so you'd be like, I went through this and this and this mm. and this and this and this. And the things that I did are kind of extraordinary considering the circumstances that I went through. Absolutely. Most people that I've ever done it with, like, again, like usually friends and family, when they've come to me and said, help me because I need to process this. When we've drawn it out, they've sort of gone, I did not know that those things were connected. My coping mechanisms for that and that and that are all the same. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly. So you learn so much about yourself from doing it as well. I think that's fantastic. And I, I think just even reading your Facebook posts or your Instagram posts or whatever posts that you put up, mm. it's detoxifying social media, at least where it is. So thank you very much thank for you. all of that. And thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for asking me. See, I told you after that chat with Dr. Jess, you'd see yourself so differently. And now... And now you need to process all of this. I know there's a lot. And maybe you don't agree with everything she says, but I know she's making you think. And you know what I think? I think you're so much better than you think you are. And I hope you start seeing it that way too. But don't worry, I'm here to keep showing and proving that to you. And thank you for being here for me too. I'm grateful to have you by my side. You take your time to listen, to give me support, your shares, your likes. It's inspirational. You're inspirational. So please share this episode with someone you care about. And here's the deal. I will keep working hard for you and you keep working hard for you too. I'm also going to post this entire conversation to my YouTube channel soon so you can actually watch the video conversation we had. And while you wait for the next episode, you never have to wait long for another video on Instagram. You can join me over there at Dahlia Kurtz. But for now, I know you have things to get to, like taking care of yourself. Yes, do something for you today. I know I say I'm the friend to you that you aren't always to yourself. But that doesn't mean you don't need to be a friend to yourself, too. Come on. I can't do everything here. So thank you for dropping by the neighboralia. And until next time, live 
and help live. And remember, there's nothing wrong with you. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya. Nothing rhymes without ya.